This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone, the first in our series of RN summer highlights from the past 12 months, and a conversation with a fellow podcaster who was in Australia earlier this year, and he was finding the Antipodean philosophical atmosphere quite congenial. What I've discovered in Australia is that it's most certainly more receptive here in this country. I was watching ABC News the other day, and they were talking about the kids in Thailand being rescued, and they had a philosopher. This is our resident philosopher who's going to talk about the ethics of risk or or something like that. You would never find that in the United States. His name is Barry Lamb. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College in New York, and he's also the creator and host of Hi-Fi Nation, which is a podcast where philosophy meets storytelling. I sat down with Barry earlier this year and I asked him if he'd created Hi-Fi Nation because he thought the storytelling genre needed deepening or if perhaps he thought philosophy needed some narrative spice. It really was the second. It really was that I felt philosophy needed something. I personally needed something more out of philosophical thinking and reading. And in the United States, there absolutely isn't philosophy in the public mind. On the other hand, the storytelling narrative genre of audio is experiencing a boom. There's so much of it, and a lot of it is in service of other disciplines like economics or the brain sciences. Those are the two areas that I think uh, have done very, a very good job integrating narrative storytelling, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, into broadening public literacy. On the other hand, when I listen to... Uh, some of the best narrative storytelling podcasts and radio, a lot of the themes are philosophical. Uh, in fact, one of the programs called This American Life, I think you have, do you get This American Life? We here do, in, very in, popular okay. in Australia, yeah. <laughs> That's right. This American Life has this structure to it where you have a story and then you have a moment of reflection. People talk about what happens in their lives and then all of a sudden there's a moment where people reflect on some bigger question. Sometimes I like to think of Hi-Fi Nation as the moment of reflection that never ends, right? And sometimes I think of philosophy that way as well. In my own philosophical work and thinking, we very much, as professionals, start off with the ideas and then the arguments for it. There isn't a kind of immediate connection, unless it's an explicitly made connection and more or less of a throwaway to everyday life or public policy or things like that. And that's what I thought philosophy generally needed. I I thought it needed um, an immediate connection, a narrative connection to somebody's stories, and then a moment of reflection where it goes so broad that the individual subjects themselves aren't there, aren't able to articulate what it is that they need answered. And that's where philosophy comes in. And as you've pointed out, we're at a very interesting cultural moment where, where storytelling is huge, you know, whether it's TV series or podcasts or, uh, or politics. You know, politics is all about the narrative these days. And people have always told stories, but recently it seems that the fact that that's the case is in and of itself something notable. What's going on there, do you think? Why this mania for storytelling? I think the technology has allowed people to do it on a scale that um, only people with very privileged access were able to do it before. You know, here in, here in Australia, you probably needed to go up through school and get an internship at the ABC uh, to even start producing your very first piece where you can do some kind of 
either journalism or nonfiction narrative. And now you can buy a good microphone and a recorder and go out and do it yourself. And what we've seen in the proliferation of people producing independently is just this hunger and also this demand to do what people have done a great job of in radio for the past you know, 20 years, only the barrier to entry is much lower now. And of course, the medium is audio, where writing has for so long been the principal delivery method for philosophy. Are you sort of harking back to an earlier Socratic tradition of oral transmission? You know, maybe, maybe that's a fanciful analogy, but there is something interesting, I think, about philosophy in the absence of the written word. It is. I think there is a real bias in academic philosophy, at least, where it's not just that the bias is towards the written word. The bias is really towards a particular genre in the written word, the essay form. And that's really only one genre of communication, of human experience with text. Audio is a totally different medium, right? And then within audio, there are various genres too. There is a Socratic form in audio. I think uh, Philosopher's Zone is a good example of that, and I think any kind of dialogue-oriented show is a good example of that. Um, And then there are these other forms, like my show is a narrative form. I think each one of these forms and each one of these media tap into different parts of the human mind and parts of the human experience. And I think there are costs for philosophers to only work with the medium of writing, and in that form, only the medium of the essay, the argumentative essay. Uh, I think in audio, you're obviously going to have some costs to it. Uh, Audio philosophy has to be more time-consuming, right? People have to spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes rather than, you know, six minutes and reading at their own rate. On the other hand, there are a lot of benefits to that. And there is a large population of people who consume the spoken word. They find the spoken word a lot more absorbing and they can retain the information better. And then when you look at different genres in audio, like narrative genres versus dialogue genres, uh, in the narrative genre, it taps into yet a different part of the human mind and the human experience where people process abstract arguments differently than they process narrative stories. There are different parts of the brain at work. And other things that you can do with narrative audio is you have an aesthetic component to it, right? You can soundtrack, you can pause for effect. You can do all of these production techniques that appeal to the aesthetic component of the mind, the part that looks for an emotional reaction, an emotional experience, which is a lot harder to do if you're just writing and you're just writing essays and monographs. Well, let's talk about an example of how it all works. I mean, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and one that I really liked was an episode where the name of God was at issue. It, it was a textbook example of how, how you weave a great story with philosophical inquiry. Can you sketch that one out for us? What was the story, and, and what was the philosophy? Sure. There was a woman named Larisha Hawkins who was a political science professor at an evangelical Christian college in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. And... Larisha had a student approach her and say, you know, we want to show some solidarity with Syrian refugees, who are mostly Muslim, um, as evangelical Christians. So why don't we wear a hijab during Lent and have the local media cover it and say that we're kind of calling attention to the Syrian refugee crisis? Uh, Larisha agreed and decided to put on a hijab and took a picture on Facebook, you know, as a as a professor of political science and said some very kind of warm words about how this was consistent with the teachings of Jesus and so forth. 
But there was one line that she said, something to the effect that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And that's one of the reasons why we should uh, care about our Muslim brothers and sisters. It wasn't the hijab, it turned out, that her employer took issue with. It was the claim that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And she was placed on leave and eventually lost her job. Because at an evangelical Christian college, the claim is that you sign a statement of faith. And if you openly state principles inconsistent with that statement, it's supposed to be grounds for dismissal. Well, that's an open question. Is it inconsistent with a Christian statement of faith that Christians and Muslims worship the same God? There is nothing in Christian theology which antedated Islam by, you know, 600 years that said anything about the Muslim God. Uh, So that question, whether it's true that it's consistent with Christian theology, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and then the question of how you would even answer that question is a philosophical one. It speaks to this issue of when any two people are thinking about or talking about the same one thing, and in particular for something like a religious deity, that's even harder because it's not a concrete entity that you can point to that two people are looking at. And it also brings in, this is what I loved about that story, was that it it brought in what for a lot of people would be a very dry, technical, uh, philosophical area, which, which has to do with the philosophy of language and the difference between the words we use to name things and the words that we use to describe things, right? I, I would imagine, you know, theoretically it would be hard to get people interested in something like that. But here, in this very sort of compelling story about a woman losing her job, that was right sort of front and center of the issue, wasn't it? That's right. And it was a conflict, as we would say in the narrative, right? A conflict in the story that had at its foundation, a philosophical question that needed to be answered. And that's what I try to look for in almost all of the stories. I try to look for a real conflict in the world that arose when something happened to a person or something happened in the law. And that conflict has a philosophical question. And philosophers generally are interested enough independently in that question that these conflicts are kind of well, they're real world and they're messy. Well, let's just look in the abstract at the question, and that's why they can be very dry, as you would put it. And they are. They're very dry and technical. But there really are these real-world conflicts that arise that people make philosophical assumptions. They think they have an answer, right, without actually investigating how hard the question is. And they use that answer in one case, in this particular case to um, render a woman without a career. <laughs> um, and there are other examples of this throughout the many seasons. You know, there are big public policy questions where billions of dollars at stake that rest on a very basic philosophical question that people just assume they have an answer to. And on RN Summer, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. My guest is Barry Lamb, who, in addition to being an associate professor of philosophy, is the creator and host of Hi-Fi Nation, which is a wonderful podcast that blends philosophy with storytelling. And we've put a link to Hi-Fi Nation on our website, abc.net.au slash rn. Look for The Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. It's a great way of teaching philosophy, isn't it? I mean, I I have friends in academia who've been asked to make their lectures available as downloadable audio, you know, and and some of them are beginning to deliver that material in a more produced style than just straight talking. And if we think of podcasts as 
you know, smart entertainment. Is yours self-consciously designed as a pedagogical tool? I don't produce it thinking of students, but I do produce it thinking of a general audience who isn't signing up for a philosophy course. What is the most I can provide for them that will make them engaged and passionate about a particular question and then want to go through the way a philosopher would think about the question that arose from a story. So I do consciously think about the audience as an audience that, first and foremost, may not desire to learn about philosophy in the, in the beginning, but then halfway through the program really want to know how this question turns out and how philosophers can engage with. So I do want to exhibit in the show philosophical thinking, and I want people to be motivated to do it for themselves. And who do you feel that you're talking to, or or who do you find that you're talking to at a time when much of the Western world seems to be taking a turn towards the stupid? You know, how how much of an appetite (laughs) is there for the kind of thing you're doing? You know, in the US, for example, are you very niche? Are you sort of tilting at the mainstream? I hope it's not going to be very niche. I think that if we put a piece of philosophy that's done in a compelling way to uh, the listening audience and the public radio listening audience in the United States, that they will come. But there is no such thing and there's no such drive to do that in the formal programming. That's why I decided to do it on my own. I mean, I'm just this philosophy professor sitting in his office, you know, three years ago, and it wasn't out there. During the golden age of produced audio, where more and more people are listening to uh, story-driven shows and then learning about other things, they weren't learning about philosophy. I want it to be a mass audience. I produce it for a larger audience. I think that professional philosophers, when they listen to my show, will find that they will not get as much out of a show like mine as they would get out of, say, um, a long-form interview show where philosophers talk to each other and debate some issue. Um, But I do think that the general audience that listens to public radio would get a lot out of it. It's interesting that so much of public discourse is devolving into this paradigm of left versus right, you know, liberal versus conservative. And there are certain philosophical traditions that, at least from a distance, seem to line up on one side of the culture wars or the other. It's something that responses to this program sometimes, if we do something that's leaning in the direction of sort of continental philosophy, feminist philosophy, this kind of thing, we get the comments of, you know, here comes the leftist ABC again. Is that something that you think about in your program, that sense that you're sometimes treading on that kind of thin ice? I do. And this is in my mind right now because I'm currently producing the last episode of this second series, which is on partisan beliefs, you know, how ideologies seem to affect beliefs and facts and whether that is actually true or just appears to be true. And I'm constantly having to think to myself whether or not the perspectives that I'm putting on are You know, to me, it's just philosophy. So, you know, you can criticize it if you want to. But the audience may not necessarily have the same kind of tools or knowledge of a tradition. And all they're going to hear is, you know, something where they're going to reduce it to some part of the culture war. This is some leftist thing or right wing thing. And I'm very conscious of it. I think that it's more about the kind of examples that philosophers use where their political leanings come through. So, for instance, if you talk about something like implicit bias, right, 
um, a philosopher may immediately just assume that the person who's listening to them is kind of a relatively liberal person from a university and use an example that they're going to recognize and accept right away, whereas somebody from a different political ideology may not accept it right away. Right. And so those are the kinds of things I think about. But as far as I'm concerned, as long as people provide some kind of reason and background for the views they're expressing, that's good enough for me. The philosophical style of the podcast seems to me to be operating in a classic analytic idiom. You know, it's it's clear, it's elucidatory, it, it meshes very well with the language of storytelling, which also has this transparency. Is that something deliberate? Does that reflect your own background in analytic philosophy? It's where I'm comfortable. And it also reflects a very considered view about how I want to use language to communicate to people. And the classical style assumes that language is comprehensible and that the best form of communication is the kind of communication you do with another person when you're in dialogue and in conversation. And when you're in conversation and one person can see something that the other person cannot, the job of the one person who sees is to describe the world to the person who doesn't see in a clear enough way that the other person can understand what they're looking at without themselves looking at the item. And the way that I think of good narrative storytelling, which is uh, the kind of thing that one person does to another, is one person is privy to a, a set of information, and they're imparting the information to the other person who doesn't see that information. And successful communication in that respect is whether the second person can fully understand and see the full picture that the first person can see. And with philosophy and abstract ideas, I think of the analytic tradition as abiding by that principle. It's how I've been trained, it's how I think about writing, and it's how I think about narrative radio. And so it was very natural for me to put it together with the kind of philosophy that I like to produce and that I like to read myself. In contrast, I think in the continental tradition, um, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just a different approach to the metaphysics of language. The idea that maybe language isn't always the kind of thing that can provide clarity where one person sees an item and is supposed to describe to the other person, right? Maybe the metaphysics of language there is that language is not meant to clearly describe but meant to elicit. And what it elicits is something quite different, a kind of experiential moment in a person that is not described for the person, but is elicited in that person out of the way that language is used. And if you have that picture, I can see how you're not trying to clearly describe, you're trying to use language in a different way to elicit a different kind of reaction. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, exactly that, that continental tradition, and a tradition that has been taken up hugely in, in literary studies, um, the unreliability of narrative, the indeterminacy of meaning, all these sort of potentially fascinating issues to unpack in a storytelling environment. How much interest do you have in, in going there with that sort of approach? I do have an interest. It's um, the first couple of series and even the third one, which I'm producing here in Australia, is my way of learning how to do the craft. And adding another element of philosophy that I know very little about would just have made it a lot harder. But as I'm growing and as I'm learning about the craft, I do want to explore areas and styles of philosophy that I'm less comfortable with um, once I'm more comfortable with actually making the narrative. So, for instance, I don't do any fiction in the podcast. It's all nonfiction, journalistic style. And when I start doing that, I think there's going to be a lot more that the continental tradition can provide. And also, you know... The, Classically speaking, 
as you said, the continental tradition is much more integrated with literary studies and narrative storytelling than the analytic tradition ever was. I recognize that. I was actually an English major in college. And uh, so there, it, it might actually be a more natural pairing than analytic philosophy, which has virtually no narrative in it. Your work makes me think about what exactly constitutes philosophy, because I, I guess there's a continuum where at one end you have technical professional philosophy and at the other end you have intelligent discussion, right? And your your program weaves in and out of both, which I really like. And there have been points in making this program, The Philosopher's Zone, where I've considered covering a topic, but I've not been entirely sure if the result will be capital P philosophy or, or just people talking about stuff. And if, if somebody happens to mention Aristotle or Hegel, then I'm covered, you know. But what do you think about that sort of grey area? Where does just talking about stuff become philosophy? Or is it more a case for you of bringing the philosophy in to the discussion? And in, in a sense, they're still quite separate. It's a really hard question, David. And it's a hard question because within philosophy, there's a lot of policing of boundaries. People who are academic philosophers publishing in academic journals will police each other and say particular gray areas are not really philosophy, right? It's just this or just that. And I've become further along in my career, much more pluralistic about, you know, being inclusive about what constitutes philosophy. In the analytic tradition, the idea is just that you have to get a sufficient level of rigor and abstraction before an ordinary discussion becomes a philosophical one. Let me just get, let me give a concrete example. The very first thing that I produced was about uh, the ethics of killing in war. And you know, a lot of people without any philosophical training can have very sophisticated discussions about the ethics of killing in war, whether civilians can be targets ever, uh, whether or not all soldiers are legitimate targets in war. And at the level at which ordinary people can have a discussion of them, I don't think it's all that far removed from what philosophers talk about. Philosophers might talk about something at a level of abstraction, Maybe they'll ask something like, is killing in war just like killing outside of war with respect to morality, right? But that's not a difference in kind from what ordinary people might talk about, whether civilians ought to be killed uh, or can be targeted or not. And so I think that what a professional philosopher can provide is just, here's a different kind of way you can think about it. Here are some analogies you may not have thought about. And when you think about these analogies in a slightly different way, you might enrich your discussion. But the discussions themselves are pieces of philosophy. I, I, I wouldn't preclude them from being philosophy at all. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and it, it continues to be fascinating. I look forward to hearing a lot more of it. My guest on The Philosopher's Zone has been Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College in New York, and the producer of Hi-Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast that I have to say is pretty much as good as this one. Barry, thanks very much for coming <laughs> yeah. on the program. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Barry Lamb. You'll usually find him teaching philosophy at Vassar College in New York. But a little earlier this year, you may have bumped into him somewhere on these shores as he was in Australia putting together season three of Hi-Fi Nation, which offers a unique blend of philosophy and storytelling. And that season three begins on January 31st. There's a link to Hi-Fi Nation on our website. 
You'll also find streaming and download links for this program. And if you do some digging around, you'll find all of our other programs as well. It's a huge back catalogue. We also have a comments page. So if you feel like joining the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. It's all at abc.net.au slash rn. There's a program menu and that's your gateway to the Philosopher's Zone. Our producer is Diane Dean. Our sound engineer this week was Andrei Shabanov. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for joining me on RN Summer, and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Listener.